And I loved to walk down the boardwalk with Smitty, who his name was Morris Smith, and everyone called him Smitty, because it was like walking down Sunset Boulevard with a cute baby or a dog, and we have some of those in the house tonight. Uh, everyone wanted to talk to you. They wanted to talk to Smitty because he loved to hear their stories. And we all like stories. We knew this before Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook. But sometimes it's easy to tell a story, but it's harder to listen. And that's what I got from my grandfather, that act of listening. So, I uh, was in uh, magazines for years, uh, worked at magazines you've heard of, like ESPN and Men's Journal, ma magazines that you may have heard of that are gone, like Mike Magazine. And um, I loved it. But the frustration was that it was hard to get in stories of regular people into mainstream magazines. It just it sort of wasn't done. Um, the women's magazine, the, the unstated maxim was, uh, we do stories of regular people when bad things happen to pretty people. Just the <laughs> truth. It wasn't much easier in ESPN or anywhere I worked. But I did love it. But eventually, I uh, took a leap. And in 2006, I started an online magazine, which is kind of like medium.com. Do you know medium.com? If you didn't have $500 million and the brain of the co-founder of Twitter. That's what I started. It was a storytelling site. People liked it. It was a terrible business. Uh, I can now say it failed, right? I mean, tonight book to admit that. But it was good, but it just wasn't a business. But then I got a little bit lucky. I threw up another, another idea onto the, the wall of Smith Mag. Uh, inspired by another old man, Ernest Hemingway. And a lot of you probably know the legend of Hemingway. The legend was, uh, Ernest Hemingway was once challenged in a bar bed. You write a whole novel in just six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Might have happened, might not have, but we all love an origin story. And this is mine. And this is the story of the Six Word Memoir Project. I challenged this pretty small community uh, to give the Hemingway novel a personal twist. I called it the Six Word Memoir, and I went home for Thanksgiving, and I told my family about it. My nephew, who was 10, said, I get it. And I had been talking for less time than this. Uh, I have one for Grandpa. Memory loss. What was I thinking? And his little brother said, can't wear tie-dye every day, want to. And it just, I was like, whoa. And the next day, I had 3,000 emails with six-word memoirs. Because back then, it was just send it to me. And at the end of the month, I'll pick a winner. Actually, we crowdsourced the winner. And um, I'll get that person an iPod, which was a good prize back then. Uh, for those who remember that. And they'll be it. But it, it really worked and it resonated. And let me show you a few examples. So it turns out the, the constraint of six words, of all the things I tried on smithmag.net, which was named after my grandfather Smitty, when I gave people a box, they filled it. Because we're a lot of writers in this room, but everyone has to write at some point. And blank pages are really scary for people. Hugh Blank Page. This is scary. Even for people who write for TV and write movies and write novels and memoirs, they're scary. And blank computer screens are the worst. So, but when that page is filled in six words, it's an icebreaker. And so people wrote with honesty and without apology, and uh, they liked it. It was thoughtful and addicting. And I gotta just point out that Courtney Kemp, uh, when she was an editorial assistant at Mademoiselle, RIP, Courtney. Uh, I, I knew her a little, and I don't know the million people who've submitted to the site by now, some of them. Uh, she wrote, only, bl Let me get this right. only black girl, fierce woman now. That is the way she defined her life, probably 22 or 23. She said, I'm owning my life. I have agency. I'm the protagonist of my own story, which is something I talk to students all the time about. They don't know they are. 
And Courtney, you know, just got like a five-something deal with stars, and she created power, and she made her story come true, you know? And I love to, to talk about the story, especially in Hollywood. Um, and, and then also, you know, it also gets funny, you know? Um, Married by Elvis, Divorced by Friday. Uh, uh, people, uh, can you tell a story in six words? Well, we have imagery, we have color, we have a narrative arc. The English interviewers love to challenge me. You can't tell a story in six words on the BBC, but you can. Um, identity is a really big part of the project, you know? Um, right. I mean, yeah, some people hitting the mental like button. Um, telling your story and all its weirdness and wonderfulness and your family, and, and Dave Sorelli is, uh, is one of my favorites. Um, and you know what? When we started getting press, not just on the coast, where the low-hanging literary fruit exists, but in places like Columbus, Ohio, where I now live, um, they did a piece in 2008 in the, the Columbus Dispatch, just unbeknownst to me, you know, until later. Um, we started getting not just wordplay, which I love, obviously, but just these deep stories. I mean, Tiffany happens to live in San Francisco. It's not the best example, but look at that story. And, and does it not tell the whole story of at least some of our lives? And we heard from people, we heard from NASCAR dads and soccer moms and, and, and people who knit, but like in the regular way, not the hipster way. And what we had, I realized soon, we had the populist storytelling project I always wanted to create, but until I offered a parameter, uh, it, just didn't, it just didn't stick. So that was um, 10 years ago, and this is our uh, ninth book. And uh, it's, it's, I'm not going to tell you it's a special book because you're going to hear about why it is in a, in a minute. Uh, and um, for me, um, the books made it possible to, to do this dream. This is my life. I have a couple employees. Shauna, where are you? Shauna, somewhere. Shauna, 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 Shauna works with me. And we have a community person. We have a couple employees. Our first corporate partnership in 2006 was with an unknown company called Twitter. At the time, we each had three employees. They grew. We stayed. We like we like the level we're at. But, but are they really happy? You know. So where we like we like what we do. Very small conference calls. And so, um, but and, and the commercial aspect really made it possible to be to keep doing what I love so much and what my team loves. But how six words became not just a tool for self-expression, but a tool for anything, to get the essence of ever, anything. And the three important words in the six-word memoir project are spark, spark a story, essence, bring it down, and community, connect with people. Those are the words that make this project run. And I show you this, uh, this slide, which um, is from a student. And when the first book came out, uh, a lot of teachers just saw, oh, we can teach this in the classroom, a way to break the ice or get the essence of every character in Catcher in the Rye, and, and anything you can think of. We have a whole blog to go to the schools, and it's, it's wild. And, and so I did a uh, TEDx talk a couple years ago, and uh, like every, like, it was 12 minutes, like every example had to be killer, right? Really did. And I'm like, pouring over memoirs and all this stuff. I'm looking at Nava Krieger's. And I've had it in, in the, you know, around for a couple years. I think she just came out in a book of all illustrated memoirs just by students that we did a few years ago. And I was like, um, and I think there had just been something in the news, probably another police African-American shooting. Uh, and I'm just thinking, I'm thinking, I'm like, I got it. So what Nava is saying is, well, bears are her number one fear. But maybe because she's nine, 
She has considered the perspective of the bear, which is humans are my number one fear. And it's like Democrats, Republicans, Arabs, Israelis, the police, and often, you know, different communities. Maybe what Nava, in her brilliance of eight years old, was saying was that if you know the bear, maybe the bear is just as scared of you. And if you ask the bear its story, maybe it's not so scary. And, you know, immigration is a Immigration is a topic that um, I wanted to do to address for years, really inspired by my grandfather, Smitty. I always wanted to get back to that first question of who are you? The answer is often, where am I from? Who are my people from? What did I become? Right? And immigration was not, it was always a good issue, and when for years I could not get a book deal on this one, the editors liked it, but then the sales people said, yeah, we can't sell this book. I was like, are you kidding me? You know? Um, I think immigration, the hot button issue is because it's this, it's this other that's somehow scary. But maybe in the 550 stories and the 10 or 12 year Backstreet Hill tonight, maybe when you know these stories, and I know we're preachers converted here, I know that. But if you know these stories, and if you buy books tonight, and you will, and I'll tell you why you will later, but you will, give it to someone who maybe doesn't, wouldn't buy this themselves, you know? Give it to someone, and this isn't like you're giving the Bill O'Reilly book to, like, you know, your, like, Obama volunteer. This is just, just give a book of stories to someone, you know? So let's, um, where's the video? This video is on, right? Yeah, you get it. So, um, I don't really need to, maybe I need the mic for the podcast, but, um, so, for me, an ideal, wait, yeah, good. For me, an ideal book reading is when, uh, two years ago, The Best Advice in Six Words came out. We did another great indie bookstore, which need not be named because it wasn't this one, but it was a good one. And an ideal book reading is when a friend comes, brings his family, buys 10 books, and says, let's do a book together. And that friend is Steve Melnick. And uh, he said after the reading, and we've always been talking, what can we do together? He said, well, we want to do a book with a fresh off the boat. And I said, definitely. In fact, immigration is a topic that I haven't been able to like get in into, and get going. Um, but with a TV show, that always helps, right? And so I said, but you know, it couldn't just be the Taiwanese-American experience. We'd have to do, you know, generally. He's like, obviously, dude. Like, <laughs> it's just a way in. And he's very smart. And he's like, of course. We'll just use that in because Fresh Off the Boat, like six words, uses pop culture in kind of a fun, sometimes playful way of looking at telling stories as a way to get to bigger issues. You know, it's sneaky, right? It's why Graydon Carter puts celebrities on the cover of Vanity Fair so you'll read the war story. But it's sneaky and it's effective. So, uh... In a bookstore two years ago, we had a 10-minute conversation, and 1,000 memos, meetings, and conference calls later, we did exactly what we set out to do. And, um, and this video will show you a little bit about how we made the book and who's in it, and then we'll hear from some, some folks in the book. The call began on social media. We're making a book. It's called Six Words Fresh Off the Boat. Hundreds of personal stories about immigration and identity. Each told in just six words. Then we paid visits to schools and small businesses, to English classes for recent immigrants, naturalization centers, and Ellis Island. And we encouraged daily encounters where people were asked these six words. And the answers came in from across America, across cultures, and across generations. Go right. I'm 
the voices of notable names in art and literature, entertainment, and sports. But she just took it back, and it was just such a powerful moment. And then this guy, pretty incredible journey. Then your mayor. What a, what a good piece of writing, you know? Love that guy. Never met him, but that's a good story. Typical, more than six words. 
Well, it's good to name. We allow a few hyphens if you're in office. Um, so, I'm so excited to uh, bring up our first storyteller, Forrest Wheeler. You know him as Emery Huang in Fresh Off the Boat. Um, he'll share where you see his six words. Um, he has, at the ripe old age of 13, been in on the show's Community, New Girl, and Chasing Life. He, this, this probably is like the coolest thing I'm imagining, Forrest, which is that um, I didn't know this because um, I'm a little older than you. You've been in the web, the web series Mortal Kombat Legacy 2. <laughs> nice. Um, you've been in movies. And when I was 13, I had a paper route. And Forrest <laughs> is on a hit TV show. And we're so pleased to bring you up as our first storyteller. Hi, I'm Forrest Wheeler, and my six-word memoir is Hot Pot, Free to Be Me, and I chose this because it's my idea of the American dream, a hot pot. You can add, subtract, and craft your food or your life to anything that you want. So an example of this is I like acting, so I can add the flavor of acting into my life, and eventually, hopefully, I can create something worthwhile and super fun in my life, and that's why I chose it, because it represents the American dream to me. Thank you, Forrest. Uh, and, you know, also, I've pretty much met none of the backstory people tonight. One or two, this is fun, just to like meet them and hear what they have to say. Uh, Dana Urbano is our next storyteller, and uh, she is a Colombian immigrant, playwright, and teaching artists at the South Coast Repertory and Breath of Fire Latina Theater Ensemble. Hi, everybody. So uh, my six words are, Sesame Street's Olivia teaches me English. Um, so we moved from Columbia to Cleveland, Ohio, when I was three years old. And we spoke absolutely no English, none of us. My parents, myself, none of us. And I have no idea how my parents learned, but for me, they plopped me in front of Sesame Street. And um, I love the Muppets, just like every other kid, but there was something about this beautiful African-American woman with this beautiful face who seemed to be talking to me. Her name was Olivia, and I loved her. And she seemed so warm and so happy, which was unlike my mother, who was really uh, very sad and... Um, I just remember one day she opened the curtain and the world had been covered in gray and she burst into tears because we'd never seen snow. Um, so I just, I did learn English and I'm very, very glad that I had that experience um, with Olivia, but it became something where I had to subsume my Spanish and uh, it was only when I moved to Hollywood and became an actor that I realized that being bilingual was important and made me who I was, and that I didn't need to lose one to be the other. So, uh, and just as a very quick little coda, I did a play a few years back, and uh, I walked into the first read-through, you know, we all sit down and we do a table read, and um, I sat down next to a beautiful African-American woman, and it was a lady read hall, who was my Olivia, and we worked together, and I finally got up the courage to tell her thank you for teaching me English. Hollywood ending there. Thank you for that. Um, and I have to just say that, you know, the, a real theme in the book is this duality, especially among students. Eight hours English, five hours Spanish, or parents, Indian at home, uh, American at work. And it's interesting because, you know, duality, sometimes it's, it's celebrated, 
And especially, I think, when for younger people, it's really, it, there's a tension there. But what I've heard in backstory events and in the book is that they, they embrace that tension and they don't run from it all, which I think is 2017 speaking the way we want, we want to hear it. Uh, our next uh, storyteller is Exion Wynn. And uh, when I read his, um, I can't remember if I asked you to submit a backstory, if you just submitted one. But um, sometimes when people, we didn't know we were going to do backstories, but people were just like, here's my six words, and here's the backstory, <laughs> okay? And it kind of kept happening, you know? And when I read his backstory, I was like, you know, if this wasn't so, the TV show people are going to like this one. But, uh, but, but it was, it, and that's not why we put it in. It, was, it, it worked on its own merit, but I sort of thought they would take it. So come on up. Thank you very much. Um, wow, uh, it's a pleasure uh, being up here. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from the book. I actually got a, a page in the book. I appreciate it. You know, you earned it. <laughs> so uh, my uh, six words are, uh, was a refugee, now a restaurant restaurateur. Um, my parents were refugees from the, the Vietnam War. Uh, they survived hardships and experienced unimaginable things. My father was a South Vietnamese soldier. He told me stories about how he uh, survived and shot. Uh, he had many scars on his body. He also had a, a shot that came out from the back of his head, out of his mouth. Um, uh, thankfully, he uh, survived. I wouldn't have been born if uh, he uh, had passed away. Uh, my parents endured the boat trip from Malaysia and were eventually rescued and sent to the U.S. Um, so basically, they didn't have any... Uh, uh, all they had on them was their clothes on their body, and my mother had a, a necklace, and uh, she sold it for $25, and guess what she spent it on? Pizza. <laughs> she went to Pizza Hut. Uh, so they ended up working at a Chinese restaurant in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, after working there for a couple of years, they uh, started their own business, uh, started their own restaurant, and they grew their, their restaurant business from there. Uh, 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 yeah, the fresh off the boat uh, parallels my life as I grew up in uh, working in restaurants, uh, struggling to find my place at school from the late 80s to, to the 90s. Uh, and then after my parents retired, I uh, joined the U.S. Navy. So I'm uh, actually an active duty uh, hospital corpsman in the U.S. Navy. Fresh up the boat like that. Um, Kathleen Chin, when I asked her for her uh, bio, she sent me three words actor, writer, storyteller. Come on up and tell us more. Hi, guys. How are you? My Chinese mom was born in the year of the dragon, which made her fierce formidable, and usually write about everything. <laughs> of course she had a major influence on me, but it was my little grandma who really made me who I am. Resilience, strength, perseverance, courage. That's what I remember about my grandma. She was a four foot eight inch force of nature, a real character, and she had been to hell and back before she turned 30. Try to look. Can you imagine what it would be like to witness your husband and your two and five-year-old sons being killed in a bombing attack when the Japanese invaded Canton, China during World War II. 
Flee on foot to Hong Kong with your daughter after losing everything, with just what you could carry on your back. End up working as a servant in a wealthy family, um, uh, uh, with a wealthy family after being a wealthy person yourself with a staff of servants, because you have no job skills except knowing how to order people around. That's karmic payback. <laughs> but you learn to cook and clean with the best of them because you have to survive. You let your daughter take off with a, a theatrical troupe to be educated because you can't afford to pay for schooling. You're separated from her for years, but miraculously reunited with her after the war ends. You see your daughter immigrate to the United States with her new husband, a polio victim with a crippled leg who owns the casino, the New China Club in Reno, Nevada. Immigrate eventually to the United States seven years later and end up in Reno to help raise your grandchildren because their parents have to run a business. You are in a foreign country where you do not speak English and there are cowboys and rednecks and a lot of white people, not many people of color, and very few Asians. But you adjust, adapting to the food and, wave and ways of America, learning your own form of Chinglish by watching TV soap operas. You even start to enjoy things in life, like learning how to gamble and the occasional cocktail, her favorite was the old fashioned, and sneaking off to the casinos while the kids are at school, returning in time to prepare dinner. You have seen the arc of technology, from electricity to indoor plumbing, to cars and air travel, to a man landing on the moon. Everyone has a washer and dryer, TV is a fact of life, a microwave is a necessity, and people connect with each other with a keyboard stroke or a smartphone. My grandmother taught me so many things, how to cook, clean, sew, gamble, oh, actually that was my dad. <laughs> I was so lucky to have her living with us as we grew up. After my dad passed away, my mom and grandma relocated to the Bay Area, but my grandmother continued to be an independent spirit, living on her own in a senior housing apartment and taking the bus every day to pick up her groceries. She would also take off on trips with her new friends, um, new adventures like wine tasting in Napa Valley or shopping at the outlet malls. She was my inspiration and I miss her so much. She finally passed at the age of 104. Whenever she talked about dying, she would say, when your number's up, it's time to go. What are you gonna do? I went to visit her a week before she passed. She had stopped eating and drinking and was unresponsive. A dear friend of mine who helps transition people to the other side suggested I, I bring something to her that she loved, some sense memory, like a fragrance or a piece of music that she could take with her into her next life. So I made her an old-fashioned, really good bourbon, and I muddled the fruit, I put it in a dropper bottle, and when I saw her, I made sure I had a big, big shot in there, and I put it in her mouth and I squeezed it. And sure enough, she opened her eyes and she said in Cantonese, wow, ho hang. That means, wow, how fragrant. Then she swallowed it, closed her eyes, and fell asleep with a little smile on her face. 
So I was so glad I was able to send her off with the memory of something she really enjoyed in this lifetime. So here's to you, Grandma. Have another old-fashioned. Cheers. <laughs> pretty good that the old-fashioned is one of my main drinks, you know? 104, you buried the lead, 104, wow. Thank you for that. And I hope that somebody hands me a drink at the end. Um, what a beautiful story. Uh, so, Tenzilla Ahmed, aka Taz, we go with Taz, don't we? Uh, I found Taz of the fun way. You know, to get these stories, uh, you know, you put the, the word out, we did a lot of work, as you saw from the video, in classrooms in immigration, with, with immigration organizations. But also, I just ask interesting people, who do you know that's interesting? And um, I ended up uh, with Taz's email, and I started listening to her podcast, and I'm like, you know, this is fascinating, and she's funny. And, you know, I will note the book is not all intense. It's funny. Some of the book is funny, right? Read the book? Funny. There's some funny stuff. It's not, it's not all intense. And so, I think when I first emailed Taz, she's like, cool, love it, I'll get back to you. Then I've been known to be a little persistent. A couple follow-up emails, hey, come on, you're not getting out of this, you're gonna do it. And she said, okay, Larry, actually, um, I've written like 20 or 25 six-word memoirs. And she sent them in. And I said, um, we have to run them all, but how? And I thought, well, we'll do an illustration. An illustration. And through the wonders of Facebook, I posted on Facebook, hi, I'm looking for an illustration to illustrate um, a bunch of six-word memoirs in the vein of an artist I know and like called Lauren Redness. It's kind of the style she has. Some people know that. And I prefer to be female, and it's possible for Bangladesh. You know, one hour later, <laughs> we had our artist. Um, whose six-word memoir is, her name is Fahamida uh, Azim, and her six words there with her, uh, her six words there with her um, signature are ingredients, sugar, spice, and righteous fury. And here to tell you, I don't know which story you're going to talk about. I included your first one up there, what you're going to say. But here to talk about some of her 20 memoirs is Tab Ahmed. <laughs> going to read them all. I sent you it. all of these just so you could pick your favorite. So Too just good. for the record, I wasn't trying to be an overachiever. I'll read them all. In mother's belly, I crossed borders. Anchor baby, fresh off the boat. Born here, but never feeling here. Daughter of Bengal third world refugee. Gold paved streets are enticing traps. Au contraire, bacon isn't Muslim kryptonite. Inshallah, don't kick me off flights. My America, perpetually second-class citizen. Modern-day Westerns, cowboys versus immigrants. It's not a tan, it's melanin. <laughs> India's partition was Nana's Muslim ban. Muscle memory reminds me to survive. I dream in poetry and rage. So, um, my backstory, let's see. I, uh, I want to talk about what happened on January 27th this year, which is when the Muslim ban dropped and everyone went to the airport, right? So, um, thousands in LA, I think we had 7,000 people show up at LAX. People were showing up all across the country at various airports because it was atrocious. The Muslim ban 1.0 that dropped that day was atrocious. And um, I'm Muslim, right? I'm wearing the Muslim shirt today also. <laughs> 
that's me correcting you famous on SNL. Um, and people, people were raging. It was right after Trump had been inaugurated into office. While this was going on, I was reflecting on my own family narratives around the Muslim ban. And uh, I realized that, you know, even though it was really shocking that this was happening here and now, there's a history behind this too. My grandfather was had his own Muslim ban, and he was in Kolkata actually, which is uh, now part of India. And in 1947, that was uh, the year that partition happened, and he was in college. He was 21 years old in college, and he was in Kolkata. And back then, they had thought that Kolkata would would remain with the rest of Bengal, which now became Bangladesh. They thought the border was going to be cut there, and he didn't think anything was going to happen. But then, when the borders were defined in 1947, he was on the wrong side of the border. And he still was in engineering school. He had two more years to go. So he continued his education. Um, and it's like the last semester. And uh, so basically from 1947 to 1949, he's under house arrest for being Muslim and in India when partition's happening. And he's basically only allowed to do schooling. Uh, all the other uh, Muslim Bangladeshis who are in the school, engineering school with him, um, can't really move about. They're, they're under uh, watch. And they decided that they needed to escape. So their plan on escaping from India to Bangladesh was um, when Holi was happening. So I don't know if you know about the Hindu festival of Holi. This is when there's uh, everyone's throwing colors all over the place. And it's very festive. And he said that under under the cover of Holi, they uh, they escaped, basically. They pretended like they were also out celebrating. He put everything he could into his backpack, made it look like he, uh, he wasn't escaping. Um, uh, and he, a lot, I, I'm not sure how he crossed. They had a meeting point in, on the other side of the city, so they had to cross by boat because they were uh, cut off by the Ganges. There was a bridge. People took rickshaws and taxis and boats. Uh, these 17 men in the in the engineering school, they took um, all these different means to get to this meeting point. They hid out at the meeting point and they got smuggled basically on a plane to go to Dhaka. So for that period of time, they were, um, for those, I believe it was like three days, people had no idea where they were um, and uh, uh, they were bound in Dhaka. Um, but that's how he was able to escape with everything on his back. And I am reflecting on this story because um, because of what's happening in America now, with now we have Muslim Ban 1.0 has turned into Muslim Ban 3.0, that this narrative could be very real for myself and for people like me. I've been doing a lot of work with the Japanese American community, which is where a lot of these piece, pieces came up. I was I visited Manzanar, um, we did, just did a campaign at uh, my day job, 18 Million Rising, on Tula Lake, uh, uh, preserving Tula Lake, um, and uh, we. Uh, went to the Japanese internment camp in Oahu last month. And I feel very strongly that what happened with the Japanese American narrative is very much tied to Muslim American narrative. And uh, I'm gonna leave you all on that Muslim Ban 3.0 is supposed to be implemented next week on October 18th. Um, the Supreme Court was supposed to hear it. They uh, pushed back on hearing it. They're gonna move forward on this new, terrible, Islamophobic, uh, uh, legislation. Um, so there's a lot of events going on. If you want to participate, check out nomuslimbanever.com. Uh, you can go there. We're doing a bunch of events uh, at 18 Million Rising. We're doing a poem a day by various uh, Asian American poets. Um, 
but there's also other ways you can participate. There's going to be, I think, a rally in LA too on the 15th. So I'm going to leave y'all with that advocacy thing to do. If you're inspired by this book, you should be inspired to participate in this because we want to welcome all kinds of people to come here. Thank you, Tess. Actually, we're going to be hearing a little bit more about Tula Lake very soon, actually. Um, and you know, as Disney and Fox will remind us, this is not a political book, and yet, um, and yet, um, this book was in the works, and it, you know, we decided to make it a deal uh, uh, in sometime in 2016, and then on November 8, 2016, uh, Trump was elected, and suddenly a timeless topic became not only timely but vital. So while it's not a political book, right, um, stories do change hearts and minds. And so I do think that the, some of the things Taz was talking about are right. Why I wanted to do it, even though it's, there's, no, there's no, the word Trump doesn't appear in this book intentionally. Um, so um, speaking of political, I don't know if she made it or not, but is Julia Chavez Rodriguez, did she make it? Okay, she was on uh, maybe. Well, here's the good news. Cesar Chavez's granddaughter's in our book, and she uh, runs state operations for Kamala Harris. So I'm thinking like as president in eight to 12 years, maybe sooner. Uh, so that's exciting. So let's just take in her six words. And um, uh, I spoke at a union conference a few weeks ago in Portland, and the cheer when I showed this one was fun. Um, and speaking of Tula Lake, uh, Kuja Nakata is our next storyteller, and he will pick up, I think, right where Taz left off. Thank you. Wow, that's great timing because um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about Tula Lake, and I do think the parallels are really close. And part of my history, which Larry didn't have, is I grew up a great picker. So I belong to the union. And that's where I spent a lot of my youth making money, you know, to go to college. So my six words were born in Tule Lake, Google it. So where's Tule Lake? What is it? So if you're not aware that Tule Lake prisoner of war camp was one of the largest of the ten camps incarcerated Japanese Americans during World War II, you're not alone. I didn't know anything about it until I was well in my twenties when I went on the first pilgrimage to Tule Lake. You see, it was taboo to talk about the camp experience, is what I know, uh, in, in my family and in a lot of Japanese-American families. And so when my dad first heard that I was going, he actually got furious with me and wouldn't talk to me about it, even though I wanted to know, you know what barracks they were in and what cell and all those things. And slowly he came around. But what he said to me was, forget about the past. The past, you know, what's done is done, focus on the future. So it's not surprising that my motto, childhood motto was, don't cry about spilled milk. And so that's always been in the back of my mind as I deal with adversary, things like that. Originally, Tula Lake was called a relocation camp. The rationale was that the government was relocating us for our own safety. Make no mistake, Tule Lake was a prisoner of war camp. I've seen the barracks, I've seen the barbed wire, uh, it's kind of you know, uh, also interesting that there was German and Italian prisoner of war prisoners in Tule Lake at the same time. Tule Lake was also where they segregated what they called disloyal no-nos. And what happened in 1943 was every Japanese American who was in the camp had to uh, 
fill out this questionnaire, and there's two questions on it. And one was, would you serve in the armed forces in active duty? And the other one was, well, would you be a uh, you know loyal citizen? And my dad, uh, particularly, probably my mother went along because she signed it also. But at that point, one of the few times when we talked about the camp experience, he said, being treated like a farm animal, being herded around with with uh, with uh, firearms, he said, I was not about to die and leave my family in the camp and go to war. And so he answered, no, no. And so all the no, no people got sent to Tule Lake. And uh, after the war, we were supposed to be deported. That's what happens when you, you know, if you classify as a disloyal American. And, but he got TV, my dad got TV, which meant that we didn't go fortunately. So that's why I have a Japanese first name, Koji. So there's Koji Keiko, who's my sister. And then after he found out that, you know, my family found out that they weren't going to be deported, there is Bill, Susie, and Gary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our family experience of the camp, or camp experience, was actually very fortunate. All five kids graduated from college. You know, we've all gone on, had really good careers. Half of us are retired. Uh, but it wasn't the case for a lot of my relatives and family friends. Uh, and also, unfortunately, the, the political mentality that caused our camp experience keeps popping its ugly head up periodically against other groups. And I have particularly down here, you know, the Muslim uh, registry, and, you know, just the whole ban on Muslims and things like that. It popped up also during the black riots as a place that they might put blacks. So that mentality is always there. So I'm always cognizant of that, even though our family you know, took that experience, didn't cry over spilt milk, and made something out of it. That's more the exception than the reality. Uh, let me end by thanking Larry, um, and also Stephen and my daughter for encouraging me to participate in this project. It's been a really life-changing experience for me. For the first time in my life, I felt free and moved to share my Tulip experience. Okay, I only did that before. I was a very active Asian American, so I did it in my own community. But to, to actually come speak to this, I'm sharing with my friends. And telling that story, telling my stories, opened me up to hear other immigration stories of my friends. Just Wednesday, I flew up to San Francisco to was it a kind of an annual uh, meeting of about six or seven of my old fraternity brothers, and I sat next to Ron Rubenstein. And in the 10 minutes that we shared our immigration stories, I learned more about Ron and came away feeling more deeply connected with him in 50 years of casual relationship. Also, it turned out that Ron and I were in the same fraternity, but he, his fellow Jewish uh, brothers, and the fellow brothers of color would always have to hide when National showed up every year, and we would have our own private dinner, and I can't remember what the little club was called. So, Ron has always been special to me, but that, but we've never shared our immigration stories. And basically, the immigration story is really the story of who we are, just based on our history. The other thing I've learned in sharing my story is that stories, that, is, stories is what brings us together instead of dividing us. Sharing my story, hearing the story of others, I end up feeling a stronger sense of love and sense of shared humanity as human beings occupying this one earth. So thank you, Larry. Thank you.
Thank you for that. You know, I really, I, uh, especially when talking to students, and you don't want to be on a soapbox, but that simple question of asking people their story, like nobody doesn't want to tell it, you know? And, and we, you know, we get in, in line at supermarkets and Ubers and whatever, and it's so easy to stare at your phone. You know, I do it too, right? When you put down the phone and you ask that person, because you've got time to kill, right? Like, what's your story? Where did you come from? Whether they look like they came from the Mayflower or they skipped war a week ago, they want to talk. And when kids say, well, I don't know, when we go around the room in classrooms, they say, well, I don't really know my family story. I'm like, you know what? I really didn't either. I, I was in my 20s when I really learned my grandfather's story. Truthfully, big epic fail for a journalist. And so I tell them that because I'm no different than them. So, it's, so sometimes their story is, don't really need to learn my family's story, right? So the simple question of asking, there's nothing more interesting than people. There's nothing in this bookstore or in Los Angeles more interesting than people. Even Blade Runner in 3D, which was actually pretty good. So um, Amy Nealon, uh, did you make an Amy? Oh, good. Amy Nealon is uh, very special to me, though we've never met because um, she is an active member of the Six Word Memoirs dot community, which um, is just where it all starts, you know? Um, it's updated every day, hundreds come in every day, we put the six, best six word, the, the Six Word Memoir of the Day across social media, we curate it, and do you know that you're November's Memoir of the Month, don't you? And she's November's Memoir of the Month. She has written, as of yesterday, um, 764 six-word memoirs. But I gotta tell you, I mean, that's nothing, right? Some people have done five and 10,000 six-word memoirs. But one of the reasons we like Amy's is that most of hers are really good. So Amy, Neil, come on up. Hi, how are you? My six-word contribution was buries his accent, buries his identity, which is actually about my husband. As a matter of fact, immigrated from Ireland this month, 37 years ago. And his story of immigration wasn't a happy one. And we had to do a couple of things to make it through the first couple of years. Uh, just a quick backstory: he, he had a pretty good childhood, I'd say. Um, pretty ideal living in a coastal village just north of Dublin. His dad was a barrister and uh, had a very strong sense of right and wrong. And uh, if you're familiar with the, the Irish church uh, to Dirty Old Town, talked about Dublin, uh, not just the city itself, but the politicians of the day. Uh, Tony's dad felt it was a good idea to try and take some of those politicians to court. Uh, their favorite accessory was brown envelope stuffed with cash, and uh, it didn't go over very well. Um, so the bomb threats started coming into his businesses. Uh, <laughs> uh, people were showing up at his house at, in the middle of the night with masks on and trying to scare him at work. So they came to California to try and start over. The thing with Tony is his parents kind of protected him from all of this. He was 11 years old at the time, didn't really know what was going on. It wasn't uncommon for his family to come over to America. He had aunties over here uh, to go to Disneyland. And uh, last time he, when he immigrated over here, he thought he was going to Disneyland. So, a uh, bit of a shock. So, about a month later, he started in sixth grade. And we were talking about the, the call on six words about you know, what's your immigrant story? And I was uh, talking to Tony, and he told a, a story, a couple of them. And the first one was his first day of school in the sixth grade. And his teacher 
asked him to come up to the chalkboard and uh, you know work out a long division problem, which wasn't a problem. He had no problem doing that. So walked up, thought I'm going to nail this. I'm going to impress the teacher. Maybe make some friends. He gets up. You know, I don't know five. 10,000 divided by five, he's up there. X, two, not, not, not. Kid in the back, what does not mean? Teacher stops him. Tony, it's not not, it's zero. You know, humiliation galore. He sits down, doesn't talk much for the rest of the day. A couple days later, he's out on the playground, sitting at a table, eating lunch by himself. And this uh, <coughs> tree trunk of a kid comes up to him looks down at him, he's like, why don't you go back to Iran where you belong? <laughs> Tony looks up and he's like, oh, I'm from Ireland, and it's Iran, not <laughs> Iran. And if he was up here telling the story, he would follow that up by saying to which, Iran. <laughs> There's that duality that Larry mentioned, um, sort of subtle in Tony's case. He would come home and he would be able to beat. You know, outside he'd try and kill the accent, try and, you know, kind of blend in and not stick out as much. But when he got home, the cups of tea were waiting, his parents were there, it was a bit of home, and it was a bit of comfort. Um, years later, when we got together, um, moving into his home, he has this, this kitchen table that I hate. And if you've ever seen When Harry Met Sally, it always reminded me of the wagon wheel coffee table. So I always think of it as the wagon wheel kitchen table. And, uh, you know, I've tried so many times, you know, get rid of this table, let's get something different. And he always says no. And finally, one day, he finally explained to me that this is the table that I had in my family's home in America where the cups of tea were had and where I could still be myself. And I'm sorry for the insensitivity. And I just want to tell you, Tony, I will never ask you to get rid of that wagon wheel kitchen table. <laughs> Thank you. Married well, Tony. Good job. Uh, speaking of resourceful, um, our next storyteller is James Glover, who is a supervising producer at CBS. And probably the party most wants me to say is that he's the president of the Mulligan Project, which is a nonprofit for disabled children in Vietnam. Thank you, James. Yes, yeah, so my six words is inspired by my mother uh, Land of Opportunity, if you're resourceful. Um, my mom came over here a few years before I was born with my American father and then moved to South Carolina. And my father passed um, when I was five, so she knew she was in a foreign land with three young children. Doesn't know anyone, barely knows the language. And she works at a sewing factory and all the money's going to daycare. So she's like, there's an elementary school across the street with a bunch of kids, so she opened a daycare at home so that way she can watch us and make money. And throughout this whole process, she's doing things like making our clothes, tearing paper towels in half so we you know, get double use out of it, um, and cutting coupons. And as the years goes on, that's the way she's able to save money, provide for us, and you know, she starts investing. And 
you know, after 60 plus years of working, because she started working when she was three years old, um, she was able to retire this past April. Um, and she always says to me, you know, here in America, like, anybody can have money. You just have to be smart and resourceful. And like I said, this past April, she finally retired, but she still tears those paper towels in half, and still steps the coupons, and so do I. And I, I mean, with so, so much of the book, you hear that, and I'm thinking about the plastic bags my grandmother saved. It's a good bag, Larry, you know, because she had two shirts during the Depression. She washed one, and she wore one, you know, so there's so much of that in the book. So speaking of land of opportunity, uh, Shen Wang, where are you? I saw you, I saw you a minute ago. You're, you're back in the green room. Uh, he is uh, a comedian, and uh, he helps make Fresh Off the Boat funny. Thank you. What's up, guys? Uh, yeah, I wrote... Uh, Morning Land of Opportunity includes stand-up, because I, I'm, a, I'm a stand-up. Um, my parents are immigrants. My parents uh, are from Taiwan. I was born in Taiwan. My parents uh, were pretty poor when they were kids. Um, and, you know, like, it was, it was, it's, it's, we kind of make a joke of this on our show, but it was, they, they lived that life where basically eating any kind of protein or meat was a, was a big treat and you don't really keep track of your birthday because there was no point to doing so uh, but you knew it might be a birthday if uh, you woke up and you got like an egg for breakfast that was a real big deal that's how my parents grew up um, and they things got better and better uh, but basically they immigrated to the US and I I've been doing Santa for like 15 plus years and it took me a while to just think about the fact that you know they, uh, I don't think they knew at the time when they immigrated here for a better future for the children that there was going to be a risk <laughs> that their children or their, their son would go into stand-up comedy. <laughs> you know, and I, I'm grateful that they're, they're very supportive. Um, but if they had known this was going to be the outcome, I don't know if they would have done it, you know? <laughs> um, I'm going to just do a quick, share a quick story about, like, my own, my, my first uncle was basically, like, the, the my dad's oldest brother, my dad's the youngest of eight, my mom's the oldest of four, uh, but my dad's oldest brother was kind of, my, my dad grew up on a farm, and you had two options, either you work your butt off on the farm or you try to do well in school. And my first uncle was the one that like excelled in school and you know, eventually created started his own business and pulled a family out of the farm. But I'm gonna just tell a quick story about how this is something he used to share with us. Uh, he had to leave, you know, the, the village or whatever to go to high school and he had to take a train really far at the age of what, like 13 to figure out how to get more education. And to pay for high school, he had, uh, the, the family gave him a bag of rice. And when he uh, got to the, 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 the office to pay for his tuition, uh, they were like, this rice is not good enough, so we can't take it. And so he was by himself, you know, far from home, and he was just like crying 
trying to figure out how to pay for his tuition. And these older boys, these older like students came and um, basically asked them what was going on. They're like, let's just combine our rice, dilute it, so it's equally bad, <laughs> equally less bad, and then we'll pay for your tuition as well. So that's how he got into high school. Um, and then he did really well for himself, um, got the whole family out of the farm life, and to the, got to the point where, you know, a bunch of us, a bunch of them immigrated over here to the U.S. Uh, my first uncle ended up paying for tuition for a lot of me, like me and one of my cousins' college tuitions. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm going to be uh, generous or rich enough to do that for my niece and nephews, but I, I'm just proud of the fact that, like, as a stand-up, as a writer on this TV show, I get to help contribute to this this new kind of America where like my, my nephew and nieces can like sit down on a Tuesday or whatever on a, with, 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 her, with their parents and, and their grandparents and watch network TV and see faces that look like them and their family. Thank you. You know, I, I have a, thinking about my own grandfather, I have this kind of rule around events, no matter what the setting. It starts with my grandfather and I on the boardwalk, and ends with the six-word slam, which is coming pretty soon, a few more storytellers. But it's like, did they work so hard, so maybe, just maybe, their grandson could create a user-generated content online magazine? I don't know exactly. I don't know, and he died before I started it. Um, but it is, it is like, it's just the greatest privilege to be able to sort of be artistic, right, and do something, and um, and be like stand up, right, and and what silly thing will your grandchildren do, you know? Although if you don't buy a lot of books tonight, the dream will end with me. Um, and I do want to make the book pitch because I know some people may have to go, but I hope you don't because the next two stories are dynamite. Which is this: we are sitting here in Skylight Books, indie bookstores actually have been doing great in the last few years. Not all of them, but the kinds that are about, are really bedrocks of the community and stay open often late to do things like this. And so you, um, let's get a, let's get a prop here. So I hope that today you walk out here with a book, any book, this, this one's a good choice for tonight. <laughs> And if you buy a bunch, like people do, they buy five and 10 and, and they throw them in drawers. And then when they need a gift for a teacher, right, or that cousins, or Secret Santa, or grandparents and grandchildren read stories together and they talk about them. Uh, it's so cool. And when you have that drawer of six-word memoir books, um, especially this timely one here, you'll be like, oh, man, oh, you're, I'm going to a party. Instead of getting that, like, uh, $10 bottle of wine that you pretend costs 20 you grab this, and now you're a conversation starter. And then you'll say a little prayer. You'll say, thank you, man. Thank you for that pitch, because now I have this, this great little thing for the host. So I told Scott you'd buy a lot, of, a lot of books, so I do hope you buy them and we sell out tonight, but I'm mostly glad you're here. And I'm also glad that um, Laksu, where did you go? I've lost everybody. There you are. Uh, come on up. Uh, Lexu is a, a, a writer and memoirist who wrote the award-winning memoir, I Love Yous Are For White People, um, and I, I do love you, man. And, um, he was not, I don't know if you were one of the first backstories to come in, but when you, this book is a puzzle, it's like, like Latin, you're trying to make all the words fit. And I just knew that of all the backstories in the book, his would be the first one in the book. So it's very special to me, and I'm so glad you're here tonight. Thank you, Larry. Larry, Larry. 
Um, first of all, thanks Larry and Shauna. Um, I got an email from Shauna actually three weeks ago, Shauna? It's a lot. We need, we need six words. <laughs> I'm like, what's, this, what's, what's Larry up to these days? And a book on immigration. I'm like, yes, I need to be in this book because my name is Lak Su and I am an immigrant. Um, I was born in Vietnam. Immigrated to, well, we escaped actually from Vietnam and ended up in Hong Kong by boat. And then from Hong Kong, we were sponsored by a Buddhist organization in Los Angeles and sponsored our whole family. And of all places Uncle Sam can place a refugee family into, he chose Hollywood, California. <laughs> Alright, this is the 80s. I, immigrate, I, I got to America in 1979 and the 80s with the, um, it was, yeah, Reagan was running the country at that time. And crack cocaine was very prominent around that time. And we lived on Sunset and Kingsley. Um, <laughs> um, so in due time, I was able to befriend a lot of the prostitutes that was running, that was walking on my street. Um, you know, immigration, I haven't thought much about it until I start writing my, my first book, Other Views of White People. And, um, you know, growing up, I was always ashamed to be an immigrant because I was treated as the other, quote-unquote. And, um, you know, looking back, without my father's guidance um, and me uh, being able to easily assimilate and adapt, uh, was very helpful for me um, because it was it was really really rough. Uh, just imagine you know being just thrown into the country where you don't know the culture, the language, um, the way people do things, say things. It was just a new a new place, and we had to figure all that out. And I gotta give it up to the. The, um, the American government too because without the um, government assistant we wouldn't be able to have made it through so you know I take that with pride because now I don't mind paying taxes because <laughs> <laughs> because I know in the 80s some of that taxes were used to support families like us um, and one more thing before I read my, my next story is that uh, I, know, I know what it's like to be an immigrant and our communities reaching out and helping us and embracing us and getting our, our, our feet wet. Now that I've quote unquote made it, I think it is also my responsibility now to turn around and give some of that assistance back to the new immigrants that are coming over, and that's that. Alright, so the title of my sixth word is, First Things First, Find a Bicycle. 
Our family immigrated to Hollywood, California in 1978 as uh, Vietnamese refugees. We left everything behind. My parents' wedding rings were the only valuables to make it up with us. My father knew we could adapt to a new life in America with what little we had. With hard work, the possibilities are endless. But first things first, he needed a bicycle to get around until he learned enough English to pass the driver's license test. Before enrolling my sister and me in school, my father searched local uh, dumpsters looking for enough bicycle parts to build a complete bike. Within weeks, he found what he needed, even inner tubes that he patched and reused. For a few years, that red 10-speed bicycle was his prized possession. While other refugees did what they could to get their feet wet in America, my father was already getting his bicycle tires wet, pedaling to and from work every day, rain or shine. When the sun was out, I rode with him. He placed me on the bicycle frame in front of him and took me around errands. We went to liquor, the liquor store to get cigarettes or, buy, or pay our utilities bill, and if I was lucky, to the grocery store. One time on his, way work, uh, on his way home from work, he decided to explore Los Angeles on a bike. He got lost. He didn't read or speak English. He couldn't find his regular route back home a route that he'd been taking repeatedly for a year. He left work at 6 p.m. and didn't get home until the next morning at 9 a.m. His, his explanation to my mother, every street and every building in downtown L.A. looked the same. I thought I could remember the landmarks instead of uh, the street names, but after a few miles, all the buildings began to look the same too. After a few years of saving, my father bought his first American car a red 1976 Chevrolet Chevette. Though he passed the driver's license test and could drive around, he didn't. The red car was covered with cloth to protect the paint from, bla from the blazing Southern California sun. It was too expensive and beloved to take out regularly. Instead, he continued to ride his bicycle everywhere until it was time to teach me how to ride. His red 10-speed soon became mine. Like my father, I learned the ins and outs of Los Angeles streets by getting lost many times. There was something about riding around LA that made me fall in love with America. The most important thing that I learned on these rides is that despite all the different people and culture in Los Angeles, we had one promising thing in common. We were all trying to chase the American dream one block at a time. We have two more stories, and our next storyteller, uh, Richard Johnson, is a, this Richard is uh, it's his third book of Six Word Memoirs you've been in. You've been in uh, Six Words on Work, and The Best Advice is Six Words. And you've been in a book about six word sentences, which I'm not sure I approve of, but nonetheless, that sounds pretty good. And uh, that's okay. Come on up, Richard. As you may have guessed, this is not my story. Um, this has to do with, started back in the mid 1920s. My grandparents uh, came over from Bulgaria um, on my mom's side. 
and their name was Tudorov. And when my grandfather came first with uh, my grandmother's father, they came in through Canada, and they worked there for a few years. And then they tried to cross the border into America. And when they came over the border, the guard uh, wouldn't spell the family name. And for the longest period of time, I thought, because my mother's maiden name was Johnson, and my grandfather's first name was Johnny, that that's how we got the Johnson, because my mother was a Johnson who married a Johnson. Uh, ended up that uh, I found out literally about a year ago uh, that in reality my grandfather chose that name um, as opposed to was being given by the guard which is what I thought originally uh, but they still wouldn't take the spelling of the family name so it still worked out <laughs> thank you Richard our final storyteller. Uh, you know him from that ABC show you may have heard of called Fresh Off the Boats, uh, Hudson Yang. Uh, he's been, you know, first of all, he's been in like 70 episodes of a TV show at the age of, he's not even 14 yet, that's coming soon. Um, it was really his, he kind of walked on, he'll tell you, he kind of walked on the, the, the audition and just took it. And, uh, but you know, beyond all that, beyond all he's accomplished at 13, uh, he's been He's been showing up, coming to bookstores, telling his stories, and it means a lot to, to me, but it means a lot to, to other kids and other people. So once again, I'm so thrilled to have my buddy Hudson Yang uh, be our final storyteller. He has graduated to get his own six-word memoir to me, and I'll tell you what mine means in a minute. Uh, so my six-word memoir is My Family's Why I Can Fly. Um, basically, this is because my family has worked so hard to help me get where I am. Uh, my mom working to come over to America and also to kind of pull herself through college. She's the first person in her family to go to college. She paid for it by picking up bottle scraps and such. And then my dad, now he just drops everything, everything, anytime, anything he's doing just to help me, no matter what I want to do. And when I first told him I wanted to be an actor, it was like while I was watching TV. He was like, Hudson, it's a really hard business, but I will support you. And he did. And the first thing he did was talk to his friends all over and got me an addition and like all the stuff that he's gone through, all those times that I got mad at him and the times he forgave me and all the times that he's basically pushed me to the edge and beyond is just reason why I chose these six words. And it's pretty short, but thank you. Thank you, Hudson. About my tea, I celebrate each new book with a six word uh, with a six word memoir tea. And for the first time I've not put my own words on the book. Uh, when the when the um when the book on uh, advice and parenting came out, I wrote So Much Crying, The Baby Too, which I wrote when my son was three months old on a t-shirt. And guys in Brooklyn are like, I feel you, bro. You know? And we would talk, though. You know, it's, it's a conversation starter. It's not meant to be an advertisement, though we do have a little logo on the back. Um, but when I was working on the book, um, my son, who is six, really, he's six. He'll be seven eventually, but he is six now. Um, he said, oh, I think I have one about the immigration experience. I'm like, who do you? And so he, uh, uh, since he grew up in Brooklyn, uh, uh, he said, centimeter by centimeter, foot by foot. Isn't that kind of what it must be like to come to America? I'm like, I think it is. And I don't know if he got lucky or if he's a six-word savant, but I wear these words proudly for him. And now we know a six-year-old can do this. How about you guys? Um, uh, 
Sean, you've been thinking about your six word memoirs. And before we hear from, from you, I want to just, um, we're not going to do more backstories, but a couple of people in the book who didn't share backstories, I wanted to start with them and their six words. Sean? Uh, mine was wanted to give mom my birthright. And you can hear the backstory afterwards. It's a great story. Um, are the Koch sisters here? I think they're coming back. They're coming back. We'll hear from them. They're the cutest two people in the room. You'll know them. Um, what about our robbers? Will you share yours? Robert, will you share yours? Uh, grandma made her own gay gifts. And there's a really great picture in the book on page 187. Want to say anything more? Are you good? No, you don't see the back side. So the front side is put your fingers through a piece of plywood that she's painted. Norwegian calculator on. And it's numbered one through five. You turn it over, and it's numbered one through ten. And it was it really was her sense of humor. The Norwegians, you know? <laughs> we learn a little bit more about our world, don't we? Right? Um, is Joaquin Brown here? You are? Oh awesome. Um, so Joaquin, uh, I should have your page marked, but um, share your six words and there's a beautiful photo of your family on page two oh five. It's actually my brother's that's okay, you can take it, he's not here. Um, but it's our grandfather did so we could. Yeah, just a universal feeling that we heard. And there's a photo of like 10, 10, 10 kids in the, in the photo of the family, which is fun. Um, who is who is dispersing with six words at the seams? Want to share one? Just just stand up and, and say it. Lisa Rosen. Please stand Daughter, up. Of, oh, Daughter of refugees, still fighting Nazis. Just raise your hand and, and share six. Oh, we're not going to end like this. <laughs> um, African descendants of displaced African people. Thank you. I, I got a voice over here. Okay, good. Chicano, mestizo, still seen as immigrant. Dad Jeff uh, somewhere. Will you share yours, Jeff? There you are. You say it again. Well, do it to Mike. Uh, sure. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Yang. Hello. <laughs> I guess I'm the one who pushes Hudson to the edge and beyond. <laughs> uh, learning English hard. Uh, learning English easy. Learning American hard. Yeah. Uh-huh. We have a couple more. A couple more. Steve. Uh, my uh, grandma's Sunday greeting got the news use of voice to Translation? Which is Yiddish uh, for uh, Dear Lord of the Sweet Boy. Thank you, Steve. Steve from Fox, who really helped make this book happen. Thank you, Steve. Um, anybody else? A couple more? You're bursting with six. Some of you got them in your head, you're being shy, there's no reason for that. We're in a bookstore by God. It's a very friendly place. <laughs> One more. One more. Here we go. Oh, yeah. All right. First of all, uh, again, welcome to the store. My six words are support indie books, support immigrant voices. <laughs> Buy the book. Buy the book. <laughs> On that note, I would um, ask all of us, the backstory people, contributors to the book, to come up for a group photo. I want to thank you. There's a lot to do on an early evening on a, on a Saturday in LA, so I've been told. You chose to come here. You should post. You chose to support stories in any bookstores, and uh, we really can't thank you enough. Thank you so much.
Thank you, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.